Welcome to another vengeful podcast of the Fleming Foundation. This is an episode of The Best Revenge. And today we're discussing why poetry matters. And it's part one, probably because Dr. Fleming will want to go into this even deeper than we're going to go today. Uh, free verse, if we even have any, any free verse. What, um, what does poetry have to say to us today in the 21st century? Why, why do you, uh, why do you think it's something that, that should be studied? I mean, I think sometimes we think of poets as these, these sort of, uh, cigarette smoking, you know, artistic types who, who live in a garret somewhere and, uh, maybe not worthy of our patronage. Well, you know, you could say, uh, similar things, for example, about the church. Look at the sort of people, and I, I say this with reluctance and sorrow, the kind of people who become priests and worse, uh, bishops and cardinals. Um, surely, uh, Christian churches, the Catholic Church in particular, if we can judge by its personnel, it's outlived whatever usefulness it might once have had for primitive people. If we, or music, if we judge music, the quality of music on, on, and the effect of music on uh, the human personalities by, say, the, the, the men and women who win the American Idol contest, uh, we would have a, take a dim view of music. Or if we judge statesmanship on the basis of George W. Bush and uh, Barack Obama and the current candidates for the presidency and, and members of Congress. So um, we... We have this bad habit, I think, uh, in, uh, I think it's universal of judging a, a craft or an institution by the kinds of people who are practicing it. Poets and writers generally, though, were not always social misfits, uh, drugging themselves to death on government salaries and grants. Uh, you know, they're, today they, 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 they give you, they get grants and then they hire their friends to come in and do a reading for, uh, $5,000. And then, uh, and then their friend invites them to do a reading for five thousand dollars. But in the old days, people like Walter Scott, he was a healthy, uh, well-connected lawyer, a boon companion. He was uh, a very much admired man. In the ancient world, Aeschylus and Sophocles were normal upper-class people who served their country in war and peace. The idea of the poet Modi, the cursed poet. Living on the Edge, that's an invention largely of the Romantic uh, era. And um, naturally, anybody who is going to be viewed as an oddball, who devotes himself to something more significant than just getting money and, and getting a good pension, but and so poets have to be uh, regarded as a little bit strange, but they haven't always been uh, freaks. But in any event, it's just a mistake to judge uh, this craft, this institution, something of fundamental importance by the sometimes creepy people who claim to be practicing it. Yeah, I, I imagine asking somebody what he does and, and he'll say something like, I'm, I'm a poet, man, you know, <laughs> with the, the cigarette uh, dropping some ash. And I think that's, that's what it is. When you, you, you remind me that Sophocles, you know, was, was a general during war. It's a bit hard for us as moderns to think of that that idea of, of, of a poet being a, a refined person who lives in society who who happens to also write verse, trying to crystallize life into into tight uh, and thoughtful uh, moments of thought. You know, Robert Frost was a fairly normal person. 
Uh, <laughs> it's hard to. It's, uh, I wouldn't start going up and down the 20th century looking for people like T. S. Eliot, Ezra Pound, and uh, and uh, E. E. Cummings or Hart Crane. Um, interesting poets, though they were, they were. Eliot tried to pretend to be normal, but he was uh, had suffered from serious depression. Although he did dress very carefully and he tried to act like a good banker and good businessman, which, and by the way, he was. There's a famous story that uh, one day uh, when Eliot was working at the bank, you know, Prufrock uh, and other poems had, had been published, and and um, he met the, the the head of the bank met somebody at a party, and and they they were talking about Eliot. And he said, "Well, I don't really read this modern poetry, but is it any good? Is is young Eliot any good?" And he said, "Oh yes, you know, he's quite the uh, he's quite the most distinguished young poet in in England today." And so the banker said, well, what a relief, because it, if, if a man is going to have to write poetry, he might as well be good at it. <laughs> <laughs> Very typically English, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Well, when, when we're talking about poetry in this way, are you, are you suggesting that poetry is something inherently or essentially human in the way that religion or politics is? Yes, uh, um, we. It seems uh, ridiculous um, because uh, the. Uh, but we're we're sort of uh, putting the cart before the horse or begging the question. I think if you look around uh, the world uh, historically, poetry has always been an essential part of uh, human society, and. Um, so the the fact that we don't think that it's important to us today may say more about our own judgment than about poetry itself. For example, if we really, you know, what we really really knew our own good, you know, look around the habitable world, how few uh, know their own good or knowing it pursue, as uh, as uh, Dryden translates Juvenal. Uh, we, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have the fattest population in the world here in the United States. People wouldn't be smoking two packs of cigarettes a day or taking methamphetamine. Um, most Americans in the past hundred years have, are nonetheless still show themselves wildly devoted to the lines to re- reciting and listening to lines of verse. Written by people like uh, Dorothy Canfield, Johnny Mercer, Cole Porter. Um, you know, the, the, the songwriters of the 20th century, the lyric writers, were uh, the, the, among the most popular poets in history. Uh, maybe they're not very good. Here's a, here's a little Johnny Mercer uh, line that people may remember. You've heard the song a million times, but you don't listen to the lyric. Uh, it's the the glowworm, shine little glowworm, glimmer, glimmer, uh, lead us less too far we wander. Love's sweet voice is calling yonder. Shine little glowworm, glimmer, glimmer. Hey there, don't get dimmer. Light the path below, above, and lead us on to love. And it gets even it glow like an incandescent wire. Glow for the female of the species. Turn on the AC and the DC. This night could use a little brightening, light up your little bug of lightning, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this is pretty clever. Even um, 
even contemporary songwriters today, some of them uh, bring off, especially in country music, a, uh, a good line of verse. Unfortunately, too much of it is like the sentimental slop of uh, uh, John Denver or the incredibly bad poetry of uh, Bruce Spring Springsteen. Here, I just looked up a couple of lines of a famous Springsteen song, Jungle Land, Beneath the City, Two Hearts Beat, Soul Engines Running Through a Night So Tender, In a Bedroom Locked in Whispers of Soft Refusal and Then Surrender. I mean, gosh, if somebody turned that into me teaching eighth grade English, I, you know, I'd give them an F. So, or it's always said deal, that Americans care about art. <laughs> But the fact is that Americans spend more time on art than any people in the history of the world. If you add up the time that the average American spends watching movies, television shows, listening to pop music, uh, going out to clubs for, for live music, we're the most art-obsessed people in history. It's too bad that most of it is mass-produced commercial junk that deadens the soul and, deadens, and, and corrupts the senses. So uh, there's a way out of this uh, aesthetic insanity that we live in. It's, it's, we, our, our art is like the junk food that uh, so many Americans put into their body. We're, we're filling our head with this, this horrible stuff. And to get back to sanity, that is to get back to reading Shakespeare and Milton instead of instead of listening to Bruce Springsteen, uh, one way that I recommend to people is to start listening to some of the really good uh, pop songs written uh, by you know people uh, like Jerome Kern and Johnny Mercer and uh, a variety of others, Rogers and Hart. This at least this this is quite artful. It comes close. To Closer to what is sometimes called, in, in reference to French music, the art song. It's closer to the art song than it is to the kind of pop music today. So, Dr. Fami, you're proposing poetry as, as a, a mental health remedy, assuming, of exactly. course, that the poetry is good. Yes, yes. It's a way of integrating your life in, in, uh, through art. It, you know, it is, I think poetry is probably the most significant art uh, that we have, because unlike music, which is a pure art, uh, poetry has to deal with our, what makes us most human, which is our means of communication, language. Well, but some people might say, well, this is, this is a, a pet thing of, of Doc London as well. You know, he enjoys poetry, enjoys writing poetry. When he was editor at Chronicles, we always got some some good poetry there. Um, are we sure this isn't just a niche thing? Well, um, <laughs> that that is uh, that is certainly a fair accusation. I, I've been reading and writing poetry since I was pretty uh, young. But if we uh, if we um, if we just take it that there are certain things that are normal in human life, like, for example, dividing human beings into age groups. This is a universal pattern. Marriage, is a, it's a universal pattern. Religion is a, and the, uh, is a universal pattern in all human societies. Similarly, telling stories in, in verse and singing songs uh, in, 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 uh, with, uh, with uh, versified lyrics – 
this is a pretty much of a of a normal uh, human activity, which is um, you, you're not going to find any healthy society where this is not true. The uh, the one way of um, so wh- whatever whatever poetry is, and we may talk about that today. Wh- whatever it is, we know that it is l- like. Like it's it's the cultural, aesthetic, intellectual equivalent of eating and drinking. The um the one of the things that um there's too much subjective, you know, stuff. People people write as if poetry is is feeling, whereas you know, poetry is uh it is a craft, you know, it's like carpentry. We we admire a, a man who on a lathe can turn out a beautiful table leg. We admire, you know, pottery that's turned out well on a wheel, you know, and, uh, for, for poetry and literature in general, Cleanth Brooks, the, uh, the Southern critic, uh, the, uh, student of the agrarians used the, used the term, um, uh, a well-wrought urn. And so poetry is, is a, it's, a, it's, it's not just some sublime art. It is a difficult craft that has to be learned, like playing, like playing the piano or or um, or, or painting a picture. It's not just something that you could sit on and learn to do in a few minutes. Well, I mean, understanding that some of our listeners may be intimidated by that, Dr. Fleming, if they they hear you say there is such a thing as good music, there is such a thing as good poetry, and they've unfortunately been listening to Bruce Springsteen and others of his ilk. <laughs> How can you help to deprogram us? Can you give us uh, some some examples of some verses that we can look at and and critique and, and maybe get a better insight into what you consider to be good poetry? I suppose not what you consider to be good poetry, but the yeah. idea that there is such a thing as objective good poetry and how we can judge it. You know, these are these are two uh, very important interrelated uh, questions. I I have a good friend. He's a, he's a much younger than I am. I'm probably old enough to be his father, but although he is a parent of uh, of, uh, of uh, teenage children, and we'd be traveling together, and he'd be uh, listening on his headphones, and I'd say, "What in the world is that god awful sound?" And he's and he would say, <laughs> "It's disco music." And I said, "Why are you rotting your mind and soul on that?" He said, and he would just say something like, "It's what I like." I mean, you're, you're not making an, uh, a moral judgment just because I happen to like disco music. And I said, "You know, that's what Jack the Ripper's mother used to say. That's just, you know, <laughs> Jack likes to torture little little animals and cut them open. And of course, when he grew up, he started cutting up women." Uh, the these are well, he was outraged. How can you equate? Uh, aesthetic judgments and moral judgments. And the fact is that if you, this is the beginning of sanity. When you realize that what you expose yourself to, what you learn to enjoy, what you form your taste on, that, that is what's going to become you. And so if you like really creepy, awful music that directly sort of tries to stir your erotic passions, you're going to turn into a creep. <clears throat> so the, uh, the, the 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 attempt to distinguish aesthetic judgment from moral judgment, you know, aesthetic. Re- in fact, aesthetic relativism leads to moral relativism. I probably uh, most of our listeners have probably read uh, C.S. Lewis's most influential book, The Abolition of Man. 
and we're going to be uh, taking up this book at our um, at our next book evening uh, this month in April. And one of the amazing things about the book is that he begins with a textbook which is preaching aesthetic relativism. You know, you say potato, I say potato. You say this is uh, this is pretty, I say it's sublime. We're just arguing about our feelings, aren't we? And and Lewis then devotes the rest of the book to showing the consequences of denying the reality of aesthetic truth. And of course, in the end, it leads to a denial that human nature is what it is, and you can reinvent human nature through uh, genetic engineering. Now, this book was written uh, right after World War II, I think, 47, and uh, it, w- it was a direct challenge to the whole idea that human nature can be reinvented, which, which is now, of course, everyday life for us, not just through behavioral psychology and B.F. Skinner and those people, and not just through genetic engineering, but, I mean, anybody, any day of the week can say, my name is no longer Bruce, it's Caitlin. And now I get to go into, I get to have an operation and I go, and I can pretend to be what I want to be. Well, it, this is, this is absurd, but it, but it is the result of people who say, I like what I like, you know, and aesthetic judgment uh, doesn't really matter. So that's, that's what the, really the beginning of sanity is to understand that music and poetry and painting and novels these are all arts that form the character, and therefore uh, you you can't just simply take refuge in this. This is what I like. The next, uh, to, the the um, for me the beginning the beginning of sense because I began liking mostly 20th century poetry, mostly the modernists, and the beginning of sense was to realize that well they couldn't have written had they not studied a long tradition of poetry. And to accept the judgment of the centuries you know, is 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 a very important first step, because if if something's been around for two or three thousand years, in the case of poetry, we if we go back to Homer, that's roughly eight hundred B.C. So if we've got twenty eight hundred or twenty twenty nine hundred years of uh, of experience, if something has stood the test of time and inspire generation after generation after generation. Um, you have to say, well, maybe if I don't like this, maybe the fault is with me and not with the work. I, for example, have never been able to uh, like Milton. And I understand this is, uh, this is a partly a personal limitation. And so I read a lot of Milton, I gr- and I grudgingly begin uh, to, ad- to admire, at the very least, his grasp of versification, because he's a master. So the, 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 the get something like, uh, Paul Graves golden, uh, anthology from the 19th century. It's just a collection of, uh, of, uh, nice poems that he happened to like. Or, uh, if you've never read anything, uh, you know, just, just find some 19th century or early 20th century textbook. Don't get the new Oxford Book of English Verse edited by, I guess, the Helen Vendler, because it's very heavy on, on avant-garde stuff. The old one by uh, Arthur Quiller Couch, which lasted down to the 60s, uh, is, is, is much more sensible. You want to you just get to the point that poetry is normal. Well, and I guess 
not just with poetry, Dr. Fleming, but you're, you're bringing us back to that idea again of religion and politics, that it's not, religion isn't just a matter of taste. Politics isn't just a matter of taste. Poetry isn't just a matter of taste. There's something uh, endemic. There's something real behind it. And we're, we're so far removed from that that we can't see that. Obviously, uh, when you're talking about the disco that's going in there, I think people can can understand that if you say, oh, this person's just eating hot dogs all the time. I think we have so many health studies these days. Someone, you can make the point even to the most obese person that, look, the reason that you're like this is because all you do from morning to night is eat hot dogs. And the odd thing is that person will acknowledge that fact and continue yes. to eat hot dogs. So I'm worried exactly. that uh, you, you had a sensible reaction from your friend who was somewhat outraged. But I wonder of the, the people who shrug their shoulders at, at Dr. Fleming's disapproval and, and put their headphones back on. Yes, uh, well, I'm, 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 I'm not expecting to get too far in, in, in my crusade to restore uh, human sanity in North America or, or, or even in Europe. But, you know, as the, he, he who has ears, let, let, let him hear, I guess, is what you have to hope for. Um, the the, the uh, but it, it is the junk food and junk culture share have many things in common. Uh, one thing they have in common is that they uh, the 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 taste of junk food is calculated to appeal to our uh, most basic instincts. For example, in a in a in a in the wilderness, primitive man, there's some certain things he can't get enough of. Oh, uh, fat meat and salt and sugar these things are essentially for brain and, mu- and neurological development and muscle development and also for to have the strength and the uh the erotic power to be able to reproduce and and uh because primitive man he want he, he kills his enemy he eats his food and he chases women i mean this is essentially as apes this is what we're programmed to do and so we have movies that stimulate our desire for violence and for sex. So aesthetically, we're being reprogrammed that way. And music that does that, and 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 so and the the lyrics of pop music, and at the same time, our our desire for for fatty meat with a lot of sugar and salt in it. And uh, these things are essential, but uh, to to human survival. But as cultures develop and civilizations grow, we invent, we create things like marriage and incest rules and, and fine dining and good wine. We don't live like beasts of the field anymore. But what pop culture does is it takes these basic instincts, learns how to mass produce them on the cheapest, crummiest level, but that it, it requires no, no training, no discipline. To, to, to learn how to appreciate. And so we end up fat with heart problems and circulatory problems, sex obsessed and violence crazed. And, you know, so it's really McDonald's and Hardee's and uh, Colonel Sanders are, in a, you know, in a conspiracy with, with Hollywood and the music industry to, ter- to turn us into not so much wild beasts, but more like zoo animals. Just go to a zoo sometime, and what, all the animals have to do at a zoo, they can eat all day. Fortunately, their diet is somewhat controlled, 
And then with all, with nothing but time on their hands, they have, they have no interest in anything but sex. And you, you see a lot of the observation of uh, homosexual behavior among uh, animals, it's all in zoo animals, because it's, it's all they've got to do. Well, the conditions of modern life, you know, live in high-rise apartment buildings and who are dealing, they're, they're, they're mass people. They're constantly involved in various institutions and organizations. They are, we, we, are, we are creating a race of people who, who are zoo animals. And so we have zoo music, not jungle music, but zoo music, zoo and zoo food. Well, we daren't say jungle music uh, in fear of uh, someone coming after us. But um, one final digression before I bring us back to the first part. I mean, I'm thinking of something that you wrote recently. Well, you didn't write it recently. It was recently posted on, on the Funny Foundation site, The Religion of Sada. And you mentioned in there that people... Some of my best friends are Muslim. You mentioned that there are people who are good Muslims in spite of their religion, which of course is horribly offensive to many people. Yeah. Uh, whoever, whoever those people are. But, but here again, I th- again, we're talking about garbage in, garbage out. That if you have a religion that, that, that marginalizes women, that, that produces, that promises a heaven of, of essentially boring sensual delight, that, that you are going to be affected metaphysically by this and it's going to change the way that you interact. And it, it's an interesting observation that if you have an impoverished religion, you, you are to be commended for rising above that if you manage to live a, a not impoverished life because the religion is affecting you the way that the junk food and maybe the junk poetry or music is affecting you. Yes, exactly. And just as, you know, there have been periods uh, where uh, Islamic scholars, Islamic writers, and, and they were given a certain degree of freedom, and they made breakthroughs in mathematics or in, uh, and uh, wrote wrote uh, interesting poetry, especially the Persians. The uh, per, per, Muslim Persian poets seemed pretty indifferent to Islam. And, of course, the one work that we know in English is the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, who is not regarded as one of the greatest poets in Persian, but a friend, a young friend of Tennyson, Edward Fitzgerald, put it into marvelous, uh, sensuous English verse. And uh, it, so every, there was a time, Stephen, like 50, 60 years ago, when 90% of the population could quote from the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, and it's rather skeptical about Islam and including the, the the prohibition on wine. He has the line, "Well, if a curse, who put it there?" And uh, it, it's constantly taking jabs at Islamic orthodoxy. So, in the same way, in the same way, there are people who write pop music and uh, and write you know write novels. Today, they're part of the junk, foul culture, but they rise above it. Uh, I was uh, listening to a, you know, Merle Haggard just died, and I was listening to a little, a few of his songs, and uh, one of my favorites he didn't write, which is, uh, it's called The Way I Am, and, uh, you know, it, it's a song by Sonny Throckmorton, written by Sonny Throckmorton, who is a legendary songwriter, you know, Wish I Was Down on Some Blue Bayou, A Bamboo Cane Stuck in the Sand. You, re- you listen to this song, and it's pretty, you know, it's not great poetry, but the words work out, and it and and it and it it is successful. And so, one of the things I try to urge people to do 
is not to run away from everything in our own lifetime. You know, a good hamburger is a good hamburger. Uh, it doesn't have to be filth. And there are, uh, uh, there are a few hamburger chains even. I, none of them has reached Rockford. But where, uh, where they, they can serve decent food. Good french fries are an excellent food. It's po- there, there's, there are things within the belly of the beast of American pop culture, including uh, contemporary movies and, and uh, contemporary songs, which are which are well written and which uh, are speaking to things which are important in the human condition. And paying attention to them and and to what the good qualities are is one way of sort of beginning to edge your way toward a, a deeper and fuller aesthetic appreciation. Well, in in that approach towards a, a deeper appreciation, Dr. Fleming, could you could you read for us uh, from Ars Poetica and give us a little bit of an intro into, as to why you 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 picked this? Okay, this is a this is a poem by Archibald MacLeish, um, which is, gets at one essential quality of poetry, which is that it has to be regarded objectively as a craft. Now, I don't think. Archie McLeish was a great poet. The, I think the best thing he ever did was as a as librarian of Congress. He had a he had he had an in with uh, the uh, Roosevelt and Truman administrations, and uh, and eventually he uh, Robert Frost approached him, and Frost was for, was approached by Eliot, and Eliot was approached by my friend Peter Russell, who is an English poet. And they sprung Ezra Pound from the loony bin that they put him into. So that that was, in my view, uh, McLeish's great contribution. But this is a poem which all uh, undergra- freshman undergraduates used to have to learn. I'll just read a few lines of it. <clears throat> a poem should be palpable and mute as a globed fruit, dumb as old medallions, medallions to the thumb, silent as the sleeve-worn stone of casement ledges where the moss is grown. A poem should be wordless as the flight of birds. A poem should be motionless in time as the moon climbs. A poem should be equal to, not true, for all the history of grief, an empty doorway and a maple leaf, for love, the leaning grasses and two lights above the sea. A poem should not mean, but be. Now, I'm not the first person to understand that McLeish violated his own principle here, that if a poem is supposed to mean but be, that why did he write a poem with a meaning? <laughs> I mean, an overt <laughs> meaning. Oh, it's a, the, poem, the whole poem is an argument. Um, but the, uh, what I find, I've always, the one thing I've agreed with in, from the first time I read this poem is that a poem should be viewed at objectively as a work of art. It either works or it doesn't work. And whatever, the, whatever the, may be the, on the poet's mind is important, but it's less important than the, than the work itself. I, I could go into, there was this ancient uh, theory about, ancient rhetorical theory about it. There was the, the poem as an artifact, there's poetry as an art form, and then there's the poet as the actual And by the way, it, it is interesting that the word, uh, the word poet means maker. And it could be, in early Greek, it could be used for, makes a ship, not just, not just somebody who makes a poem. But this, this is 
on one important aspect of poetry. So, for example, the 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 greatest of the cursed poets, the poète maudit, was uh, the French poet Baudelaire. And at the height of his fame, he was anti-Catholic, diabolical, uh, pursuing sensations, uh, taking drugs. He was he was the model of the poet as stinker. And yet, he was the finest craftsman probably uh, of the 19th century. I would say Baudelaire and Leopardi are the are the two two just as as craft. And of course, his last poems show this great this great man who had gone astray, struggling back and finding his way to the church. And so, you know, the, just reading, uh, reading through Baudelaire, just appreciating his, his, his quest for perfect beauty, also it led him and it leads the reader on a journey which ends up back in, in, in insanity. It's interesting that I think the first poet, uh, the first English poet, who realized how valuable Baudelaire was to people like us was T.S. Eliot. Uh, my friend Mel Bradford used to say, Mr. Eliot has taught us how to read Baudelaire. And there's, there's, there's real truth in that. But my, my point in bringing this up is that Baudelaire was above all a great craftsman. And his, pers- I, and I believe there is something relevant about his pursuit of his craft. That, that ends up leading him deeper and deeper into, um, into moral and spiritual questions until he writes his last great poems, which are, which are, uh, deeply moving, uh, and, uh, uh, poems which I think only a religious person could write. Well, Dr. So, I mean, there's also a, a, a mental discipline associated with, with poetry, not, I suppose, not just in the reciting, which we would see more in an oral culture as we would see in ancient Greece, but, but in, in the receiving and in, in, in the, in the listening and the, in the memorizing. And I've recently been reading, um, uh, several works that have been discussing the neurological impact the internet has had. It was a sort of larger version of an article in the Atlantic which was titled, Is the Internet Making Us Dumber? And it talked about the neurological pathways that are formed when reading hard text as opposed to skimming digital text. And it's, it's really, really fascinating. But it seems as though memorizing poetry is, an, is a counterattack against the, the sort of shallowing of our minds that the digital world is, is, is subjecting us to, that you're forcing your brain into these... Um, categories and and exercises that will will strengthen these neurological connections and create um uh, richer richer neural networks i'm sorry i'm talking in terms of science but i found it so fascinating to see that things like memorizing poetry or, or deep study of text are actually not just good for our souls but good for our brains yeah you know the the um one of the most important articles on poetry written in my lifetime was written by the English poet Frederick Turner. Fred uh, teaches uh, English at the University of Texas, Dallas. He's a very, very creative, innovative uh, person. I remember once I, 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 I got him to talk at a Pat Buchanan American Cause conference. This is this was hilarious, the idea of this extremely brilliant, sophisticated English poet uh, uh, talking to, uh, to, to, uh, Buchanan supporters who are, shall we say, not the most, uh, cultivated, uh, readers. 
And what he what he told them, of course, was that there was nothing more fuddy-duddy and old hat than experimental modern verse. And that if you really wanted to be avant-garde and groovy and exciting and passionate, you had to learn how to you had to learn rhythm and rhyme and all the, the te- techniques of poetry. But uh, way back in like the late seventies, Fred uh, wrote uh, Frederick Turner wrote a wonderful essay for poetry, not a journal I would recommend anybody reading uh, and in any period of its history, but uh, especially not today. But um, it, it was co-written with a neurologist. I believe his name was Ernst Pöppel. And what Purple had done, and Fred was picking up on, was that they would read, uh, they would read, uh, put people's brains up and read prose, then read modern, po- modern, uh, formless poetry, and then they would read, uh, formal metered poetry. And what Purple showed is that the brainwave pattern mo- changed radically when you started reading traditional verse, and that, in fact, the two parts of the brain, which often function semi-separately, the, pat- the, 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 the neural patterns would become integrated. And that, that poetry gives uh, this sense of wholeness, of three di- sort of neurological three-dimensionality, which, it, which cannot be done through prose. And, of course, this is... Uh, Turner, who had started off life writing uh, free verse, he ended up uh, writing uh, rather strict metered verse, uh, and this was part of his his groping toward the truth. And I think I think people know this almost instinctively. Way back uh, in the uh, in the seventies, I think it was, somewhat some clever person did a poll. He went around and talked to people. And he said, uh, he would ask, do you, do you read poetry? And if they said yes, then the, that, then that, then they got a further question. Do you like traditional old poetry or do you like contemporary poetry? And so then he had two groups. So he asked the people who liked old poetry, can you read me your favorite poems? Recite from memory. Well, they would go on and on and on. You know, the world is too much with us, late and soon, getting and spending relations. So they, they could, the people who liked traditional poetry could remember it. Then he would ask the people who liked contemporary poetry. To, they couldn't recite a line. So <laughs> one thing we know is that the impact of traditional verse uh, is it, part, it, it, it sticks in the memory People love it enough to read it over and over and memorize it, but if you can uh, accept the uh, neurological argument, which which I certainly do. Uh, by the way, I was I was attacked in the nation once for 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 uh, arguing this. Although, by the way, one of the nation's own editors, their poetry editor Tom Dish, who is a left wing uh, science fiction writer, but Dish only writes formal poetry. Even in the nation, even in the nation, their own, their own in-house poetry man was on my side. Say, this is a very subversive argument. What, what, what Fred Turner was saying was that, and, and, and his neurological accomplice was that formal poetry changes the human mind and integrates it and satisfies it in a way that music can, but no other use of language can. 
Well, you come on to the point that I wanted to make, which is if you ask young people if they've memorized anything, they'll, they'll tell you no. But if you put on some pop music and watch them sing every single line by heart, you will see your argument again proven. They'll say, oh, I don't know poetry. But because the music that they love is written in rhyming patterns, that's part of how they're easily able to memorize it. I suppose that and listening to it, uh, you know, several hundred times might might help. But uh, it does. But you know, I there. think you could listen to uh, you could listen to uh, some academic poet uh, or you know some some current poet laureate. You could listen to them a million times and you wouldn't remember it. Because it's mm. it's almost it's not just unmemorable it's anti-memorable. <laughs> anti-memorable that's definitely uh, I think suitable to describe some of these things. I, I suppose that's sort of the 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 shocking thing when we see who's awarded poet laureates these days and we read some of their their stuff or these people read at um, <clears throat> presidential inaugurations and you think. Who are these people, and how did they get here? Uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's shocking, really. Yeah, it's like um, everything else, you know. It's like it's like MFA programs, masters in fine arts, and you, you can get them in painting or sculpture or basket weaving, and uh, master's degrees in uh, in creative writing. Uh, I, I've always I once designed. I was teaching at what is called a traditional Negro college. And, uh, and I was teaching humanities and uh, the head of the program realized that their kids couldn't write at all. And their English teacher uh, was a bit of a lush and uh, she was, she just wanted to teach them how to write from the heart. And of course, these kids couldn't write a, a, a job letter. So I uh, agreed to create a course in what I called uncreative writing. And in the end, the English, well, I created the course and then the English teacher got extremely angry, uh, not uh, because, first of all, I'm a classicist. Second of all, I, ha I had two other strikes against me. One of them was that I was a male and the other was the color of my skin because I was the only white teacher in the program. But, um, but the fact is that people, you can, you can teach people uncreative writing. That is, you can teach them how to write a formal essay. Gosh knows, I've hired editor after editor with, without a scrap of talent and managed to teach them how to write credible, you know, at least credible, decent journalistic English. You can also teach people how to write a ballad, a sonnet. Uh, I could take anybody, uh, and within a couple of days, I could teach them how to write, at least begin the process of learning how to write formal verse. And once you refine the process, once you get you get good technically, then the day will come when it's sort of natural, and then it's up to you to have something to say. But not, but but you can teach the tools. You can't teach people to be original or brilliant or clever or anything else. What you can teach them to do, you can teach somebody how to do oil painting. You can't teach them to be Vermeer or Rembrandt, but you can teach them the technique. And similarly, poetry uncreative poetic writing can be taught and i know because i've done it i've taken i've taken uh, kids for just a couple of weeks and they can they can turn out things in formal verse the first thing is to train their ear it's amazingly because pop music today the 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 syllables clunk together and they have cheap rhyming words like can you tell me who this poet is Stephen? 
Johnny's in the basement mixing up the medicine. I'm on the pavement thinking about the government. The man in the trench coat, badge out, laid out, said he's got a bad cough, wants to get it paid off. Look out, kid. It's something you did. God knows when, but you're doing it again. You better duck down the alleyway looking for a new friend. The man in the coonskin cap in the big pen wants $11 bills, but you only got 10 What masterful poet wrote that? I I have no idea. Maybe if I went, Johnny's on the page. It's Bob Dylan. Subterranean Homesick Blues. Actually, it was a top 40 song. It was like like in 19, I don't know, 66. 38, admittedly. It was near the bottom. Now, this is terrible. This is absolutely... I mean, he thinks he's clever by these... You see, every every uh, rhyming word, it's just he comes up with one word and then scratches his head and, and comes up with an improbable rhyme. And it's so improbable, you think he's being clever, but he's not. The one thing, the one thing you the first thing you teach, if you're going to write rhyming poetry, pick the second rhyming word first. So it sounds natural, not like it was not like it's. But of course. Uh, I believe that this kind of Dylan style led to the worst modern pop art form, which is known as rap. I mean, there's these these moronic uh, rhyming lines that don't mean anything one after another. Uh, it's this is it's clear that uh, it, it uh, that Dylan has a has a hand in the formation of rap. Another reason to hate uh, Mr. Zimmerman from Hibbing, Minnesota. Well, it's funny, uh, you remind me that uh, IBM recently published some ads with Dylan and Watson, their AI, that won all those Jeopardy programs. And uh, Watson suggests that he should he, he could write a song for Dylan since he's so familiar with his catalog. To your point, maybe maybe Watson might do a better job than, uh, than Dylan. Um, Absolutely. I, I thought you made the, the point neurologically and aesthetically against three verse. But I thought if, if that wasn't enough for our listeners, you may weigh in with the religious argument that uh, it seems that even the, the God of Israel and the God of the New Testament uh, is an advocate for poetry. Uh, if we don't see this in the Canticle of Pentacles in the Old Testament, we can certainly feel and sense that rhythm in something as simple as the Beatitudes. Yes. I suppose in the ori- in both in the original and even in the translation. The uh, you know there's there's a tremendous amount of poetry of course in the in the and of course Hebrew poetry the rules are different and the pattern is different but you know the, they they don't use rhyme it's interesting that rhyme is uh, very uh, re- mostly uh, late medieval and Renaissance and develops in uh, in Italy and France and um, one of the tragedies of English of course is that English is not a good language for rhyme uh, you, the um, uh, Italian and French rhyme is very easy because you have these final, in the, in the case of Italian, the, the short A or the O vowel, and that's all you need to justify a rhyme in Dante. Whereas in English, we, we're, it's, a, it's a much more uh, a language with a lot of uh, he, flat monosyllabic endings. Here's a, when, when, uh, when people are trying to write rhyming verse, and by the way, it's not easy to write good rhyme because it's got to sound natural. And the rhyming words have to be significant. They should carry the weight of some of the meaning. Here's a two stanzas of one of my favorite poems, uh, Walter Savage Landers' Yes, I Write Verses Now and Then. It's a lament on growing old. 
and uh, and he's taught. He says, you know, I I can't climb over the gate anymore. And and then he he talks about his in, his lack of interest in charming young women uh, uh, dancing. And he says, through Gallopod, I cannot swing the entangling blooms of beauty's spring. I cannot say the tender thing, be it true or false. And I'm beginning to opine those girls are only half divine whose waists yon wicked boys entwine in giddy waltz. I mean, false and waltz, I mean, the, 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 the springs here, the, the rhymes here are all, uh, they're the, they're the words that carry the meaning. And you, you don't, of course, Lander was a great student of Greek and Latin poetry, which doesn't rhyme, but his careful choice of words, that's one of the things he learned from the ancients. Well, I'm going to play the, uh, the role of the annoying student in the back of your classroom, Dr. Fleming, and raise my hand and say, but, but Dr. Fleming, didn't Aristotle say that this poetry is not defined by rhythm? I thought you were a big fan of Aristotle. <laughs> yes, uh, that is certainly true. This is, other than thinking that uh, this is one of Aristotle's greatest mistakes, I think uh, certainly much greater than miscounting the, the legs on a spider, which is a trivial uh, thing. But you have to understand, when Aristotle is writing his uh, his poetics, he's thinking only about two arts, and one in particular, that is drama and epic. And he, so he's thinking about storytelling. And so for him, plot and character are the center of poetry. And he says, uh, you know, it's not just, he said, most people, see, this is where Aristotle picks himself, because Aristotle normally is on the side of what most people think. And he is against clever philosophers who have ideas. And he's always showing those them up as chump. I think it's Miles Bernier at the uh, University of Toronto said, whenever Aristotle contrasts what peasants think with what a philosopher thinks, he says the philosopher's always being set up. Peasant is always right. But, well, Greek peasants knew that poetry was rhythm, and form, and and it wasn't just the content. And Aristotle says, well, if that were true, then the philosophical poem of Empedocles would be poetry. Well, I would argue very strongly that on the basis of the couple of hundred lines we have, that Empedocles is as much a poet as as he is a philosopher. But it's because Aristotle was trying to define poetry in the terms of his of his subject, which was uh, which was essentially tragedy, and so he makes the mistake of over uh, defining it. <clears throat> poetry is the essential art. It uses the art that makes us human. That is uh, our language, and raises that art to the level of music, and it does that through. Uh, through the use of rhythm and through strict rhythm, which is a poetic meter. I've read that uh, people who deal with seriously disabled patients, that is, the deaf and the blind, say that it's easier to uh, it's easier to become human and lead a normal life blind than it is deaf, because it's language, speech, and conversation that make us human and keep us human. And if you're born deaf, it's very hard for you to be integrated into uh, into a normal life. So as a result, people 
They say that, that uh, people born deaf are often, not always, but they're often very cruel. They're very cold people because they haven't learned to uh, integrate themselves with other human beings through speech. I mean, Helen Keller was uh, was not a very nice person until she was sort of she was trained. And this uh, this is uh, this is if art if art can do anything to us. That is, if art, uh, painting, music, sculpture, poetry, it, it is, I think, it, it makes us human and humane. That is, we're, we're alive to the humanity of other people. This is something you can learn from reading uh, the wonderful passage in the second book of the Aeneid, where, where, where they, they realize that the Trojans are washed up on the shores of Carthage and they see that their own sufferings and experiences in the Trojan War are commemorated there in sculpture, <clears throat> and they realize that that, that the lot, that the minds of the people in Carthage, even there, so far away, these aliens have been touched by the story of the Trojans. And uh, this is really what Virgil. It's very important to Virgil as part of his art. Well. I, I said at the beginning of the day that another eventful podcast. Uh, of course, I'm playing on the fact that you call this series the best revenge. And our listeners um, eager and excited after listening to your vacation today to, to get started. So may I ask a couple questions? One is, where might someone get started? And secondly, how does one go about memorizing poetry? What too ambitious. You start with something like a Shakespearean thought. Yeah. I am. Um, I find that uh, one one good way to begin is through poetry that tells us. Storytelling poetry, of course, is among the oldest that we have, and among the most beautiful stories in verse are the English and Scottish ballads. They are very. Uh, they're very. The stories are very subtle almost as if you have to reconstruct the story out of the dialogue uh, in, in it. But uh, a poem, a, a, a song like Barbara Allen, or uh, the, the, the Hunting of the Cheviot, I mean, there, there are all uh, Chevy Chase, there are all, all sorts of wonderful uh, story poems in that tradition. And, and always when I used to teach uh, literature, I would begin the study of uh, English literature through through the ballads because they're 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 fun. Uh, many of them we have the tune uh, as and you know Barbara Allen became a very a uh, favorite uh, uh, Appalachian tune, and and um, so that that's a good way to begin. Speeches in Shakespeare in blank verse are also a good way to begin because they're they're dramatic. I I. I when I was young, I memorized all sorts of speeches from Julius Caesar and Hamlet. And one way to memorize them, you have to learn, well, you have to learn how you best learn. Some people learn with the eyes. I don't think that's very common, but some people learn well with the eyes. Many people learn better uh, by, by through the ears and the mouth. So speaking it aloud over and over is uh, is really an important part. And I discovered <clears throat> when I was working for my father in his his ballpark, uh, in between games or getting ready for a game, 
I would march through the stadium with a, with a volume of Shakespeare and read it aloud and sort of walk, walk according to the cadences of the rhythm. And I found that that made it stick very quickly because I, the, my, my body was learning it as well as my ear. But everybody learns a little bit differently. But the one way we rarely learn anything very well is just by reading with the eyes. You don't learn a foreign language that way, and you don't memorize poetry that way either. Start with things you like. Also, um, if you're a parent, you could start your children with um, nursery rhymes. It's appalling today that uh, children are not taught Mother Goose rhymes from an early age. I, when, when, when my own children went to first grade, I usually didn't send them to kindergarten, but they went to first grade, the teachers would say, oh, your children have read so much literature. I had no idea what they were talking about, but it turned out my kids knew Mother Goose rhymes. <laughs> so Mother Goose rhymes, uh, ballads, old-fashioned old, old songs like the, the songs of Tom Moore uh, in the, uh, the, uh, the Irish poet, all of these uh, if you can sing them, it may it makes it much easier to memorize speeches from Shakespeare because they're they're dramatic, and uh, you know a, a good, really good book to read to children is Robert Louis Stevenson's A Child's Garden of Verses. He was an extremely accomplished poet. I mean, te- technically, Stevenson knew how to put words together to make them sound musical. He is one of Stevenson is certainly one of the most accomplished uh, stylists that we have in, in the sense of getting the sound of, of his writing perfectly. But so there, there, there are lots of things out there to start on. And uh, don't, don't try to don't read things that don't interest you the first time. I mean, you're going to have to develop a taste for it. It's like uh, you're not going to like uh, French cuisine the first time you eat it necessarily. It, it, or French wine. French wine is very subtle compared to a, a more primitive wines like South Italian wine. It's less obvious. So these are these are arts to cultivate, things to learn. And I think we have so many things available. We you know we are in the information age and we have so much. Uh, you you reminded me of uh, Julius Caesar and Hamlet. I, these were things that really interested me when I back when I was a young man. And um, I I. I would have a combination of, of reading the text, writing out parts of the text myself, and then and then listening to or watching speech. I, part of the challenge was, however, then I heard it in Lawrence Olivier's voice, and I felt compelled to deliver it in his in his uh, accent. So you have to deprogram it. Same thing can happen sometimes with a, a favorite piece of music. You listen to a particular uh, way that uh, the four seasons are played over and over, and then when you hear it in a live performance, you think, oh, that's a little faster or slower than than I'm used to. So it's a chance for us to take those occasions, those ways of memorization that you're referring to, to make them our own while still using these as helpful footstools to get to that stage. And it's really rewarding. I, I have to say, um, it does impress the ladies when you can when you can recite some Shakespeare. That's funny. Not that you're interested in stuff like that, but but uh, bachelors. Well, you know, when I was uh, when I was a young when I was 17 or 18, and uh, my my brother-in-law. Uh, who was a doctor said to me, you know, you must get lots of women with because you can recite all this poetry. You know, it, it had never occurred to me to be that cynical to use my knowledge, my 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 uh, my storehouse of memorized poetry as a as a way of of getting girls. But 
Um, I'm glad he made the re- recommendation because it did work. <laughs> <laughs> and and on that practical note, uh, we'll bring our today's episode to a close, Dr. Fleming. Is there anything else you'd like to, to chat? Obviously, we weren't able to talk about everything you'd like to talk about today. But is there no, no, no. We'll we'll do we'll like do many more. No, All right. We'll do enough. we'll do many more on this subject. And uh, but I think this is we've uh, we've tortured listeners long enough. As always, we want to thank our Gold and Charter members for whom this podcast is produced and whose subscription makes this podcast possible in the first place. And secondly, we want to thank Dr. Fleming for his time sharing uh, his thoughts, his recommendations, and his uh, gentle encouragement uh, to uh, stop eating metaphysical junk food and start putting some good poetry in our brain. Thanks for your time, Dr. Fleming. Thank you. As a reminder, The Best Revenge is a production of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Please join us next month as we get into another episode with our guests on this network.